0: You know there may not be a better song right for the moment we're in and if you haven't been watching there's an election taking place and whether you're here in this room or you're listening online and you're a student or just part of defender nation i'm excited to get to be in this moment at 11 a.m the day after the election as it's swirling around because we get to speak in this moment as a church and as a people of God, and it matters. And so, what a moment that we're in 2020, from the pandemic to the election to everything that is you in person in school and your studies. And how are you doing? And I mean that question how is your soul? In the midst of what's happening as as maybe anxiety and fear is is rising or just you're just weary of of everything and you're kind of throwing your hands up. How are you doing? As we think about the results that are coming in as we speak and that will be coming in over the next few days. What will your response to those results be? Will you be destroyed and crushed? Will you be overjoyed and excited? Or maybe just a little apathetic, just thankful that it's over because we're just weary of it all. I think no matter what our response is, joyful or sorrowful or, or apathetic, I think it's fairly telling What story, what vision for the future shapes and drives us most? And that's the question that I want to ask us this morning. Is what vision for the future shapes and drives you most? What vision for the future shapes and drives you most? Because right now in this moment we're being sold certain visions for the future. No matter what side you are on. That's what campaign slogans are. Right, to restore the soul of America, or to keep America great again. That's what talking po- points are on either side. They're a vision, a particular vision for the future. As I was preparing this message, I, ax- I actually got a text from, I don't know if you've been getting political mail, political texts, encouraging you to vote, encouraging you to be a part of this process. But on Monday, I get this text, and it said, Sam, it was encouraged me to vote. This is the last chance to protect your future. Go and vote. And I was like, yeah, as if whoever is in the Oval Office defines my future. Yes, it's helpful. Yes, it's important. Yes, we should engage. But my future is defined, and so is yours. The future vision of the church is Revelation chapter 4 and 5 that we read this morning where every tribe and every tongue and every nation will worship the living God. But we're being sold particular visions of the future. And it's not simply during an election. It's in our daily lives. Through the TV we watch or the news and social media that we consume, we're being sold a particular vision of the future. Here's how Callie uh, Lassnan puts it. In her book, Culture Jam, she writes this. Dreams, or you can say the word vision, dreams by definition are supposed to be unique and imaginative. Yet the bulk of the population is dreaming the same dream. It's a dream of wealth, power, fame, plenty of sex, and exciting recreational opportunities. This is the vision our culture is Selling us, and it's the vision that we consume often without even knowing it. It's the American dream. It's the dream of power, wealth, and money. And if you've been keeping up with this chapel series, you've heard Aaron on several different occasions talk about how one of the primary strategies of the enemy right now is to attack our imagination. It's to attack the churches, the people of God's imagination. Our visions for the future, and I'm afraid we as a people of God and as a church have bought in to the American dream. Or we've bought in to whatever political party we subscribe to. We're all in on one side or the other, and we think that person or that policy or that legislation will take us to the promised land. It seems to be that these visions for the future are the ones that are shaping and driving us most. How we vote, and how we post, and how we treat each other, and how we work. Rather than the vision that's given to us in Scripture. And I'm afraid that we as a church, as a result of buying into this vision, we are stunting our imagination. We're selling ourselves short, and we're selling the world short. Because we're buying into visions of the world and political ideologies And it's causing us to look to earthly things that will fade rather than heavenly things that will be eternal. And this is a similar situation in which Paul finds himself as he writes to the church in Colossae. Paul is writing to a church that is weary and dry and burdened and succumbing to the pressures of Rome, of the world, of the empire. And what Paul has done in Colossians 3 thus far, as he said to the church in Colossae, he said, set your minds on the things above. Right? Set your imaginations, your visions, your dreams on the things that are in heaven. Put to death the visions of the world and put on the vision of the church. Put on the narrative and the reality of Jesus. They're crucified and risen Messiah. And so what Paul is doing in Colossians chapter 3 is inviting us into an alternative vision for the world. It's the vision and the call of the church, of the people of God, and it's that vision that must shape and drive us more than any other dream or vision for the future. And here's what the vision is. It's Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And here's what we come to today, verse 14. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And above all these, put on love. Love is the preeminent characteristic of Jesus. And it's what we as the church, as Christians, as Jesus followers, are called to be known by. It's important. We can think about Jesus when he was asked what is the greatest commandment and his response was to love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is like it to love your neighbor as yourself. Paul in Romans chapter 13 he says, "You know what? Every commandment God has ever given, know how it can be summed up by love." He writes this, he says, "You shall love your neighbor as yourself." Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. To love God and to love people are the most important commandments. Love is the law summed up. It's the law summarized. In in this text in Romans 13, verse 10, it says, Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Who's your neighbor? Everybody. Christians and non-Christians, every race and every ethnicity, every socioeconomic background, every sexual orientation. Our neighbor is everybody always, and love does no wrong to any of them. So if love is so important, if it's the preeminent characteristic of Jesus and the church, what is it? What is love? Well, love is not, I can tell you that first, sentimentality. Love is not a feeling that we have inside or butterflies when you see a, you know, good-looking guy or a pretty girl, right? It's, it's, it's not a feeling, but it is a choice, right? I don't, I, if I'm being honest, I don't always feel like loving my wife or loving my kids. You're like, what? But, I don't know, daylight savings time. Was anyone excited to get an extra hour of sleep on Sunday? Yeah, you raise your hand, but you know what that means for For parents of small children. It means that your kids get up at 5 a.m. Because they think it's 6 a.m. And this week. Oh man. Sunday my boys wake up. It's like 5.15 a.m. And they are playing. And they're ready to go. And I I roll over and I think. I don't want to be a father right now. I I don't want to. I want to lock them in their room. I want to keep them there. But I get up. And I play cars with them. And I make them breakfast. And we have fun. I didn't want to. But I chose to do it. Right? I don't always feel like loving the weird guy that lives down the street from me. Just to clarify, I don't, I probably have a weird guy that lives down the street from me, but I don't know him, but I'm just kind of talking about the proverbial weird guy that's always in our life. Right? You know that guy? Right? We we, we don't always feel like loving him or her, but we're called to do so, to put it on, to choose to love them. But here's what love is. Love is putting on flesh. Here's how a couple of commentators talk about love in their commentary on Colossians. They write this Love cannot remain an abstract idea, it must take on flesh in the embodied life of the Christian community, in particular places and at particular times. Love puts on flesh to real people. At real times love is the embodiment of all the characteristics that we've been unpacking this semester It's the embodiment of compassion and of kindness and of humility and of patience and of forgiveness And we as a church are called to embody these things We are called to embody these things as an alternative vision as an alternative future For the world to actual people and actual places And isn't this what Jesus literally did? John chapter 1, verse 14, I want to read it from the message for us. Here's what it says. It says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. I love that. Jesus put on flesh and blood and he moved into the neighborhood. Right, Jesus, who did not count equality with God. Right? Jesus, who was God, Jesus, who was in heaven, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. But he emptied himself. But he denied himself. But he sacrificed himself. He became a human and was obedient to the point of death. The most humiliating and excruciating death reserved for the worst criminals on the cross. Right, that, that's the good news of Jesus. Jesus lived out this vision literally so that we might experience it in the present as well. Right, the good news is that God is not a distant God. God did not just start the world at the beginning, and God is not just ending the world at the end, but he's present right here in the middle. He's present right now in your life, and in our world, and in our election, and in this pandemic. He is not a distant God, but he is a personal, intimate God. And this is the vision. This is the vision of the church and where we are called, and it's one of downward mobility. It is not an upward climb to get more money and more power or more fame, but it's one of self-sacrifice, and it's one of self-denial. And we do not hear that in our time, and we do not want to take part in that in our flesh, but it's what we're called to do. Remember where Colossians 3 starts. It starts with setting our minds on the things above. But you know what's above? Jesus, a crucified and risen Savior who took on flesh for me and you and the world. He left heaven. He left perfection. He left comfortability to literally live out the vision of Colossians chapter 3 so that we can experience it right now. And extend it to other people. And it's the dream we're called to imagine. And it's the dream we're called to embody. And it's the dream that must shape and drive us most. And I think based on our response over the last few months to this election cycle, I am worried that we as a church, and when I say church I mean the people of God, are driving a wedge further in between us us. Right? We're driving a wedge in the church between Christians, and we're driving a wedge between people in the world, whether they're Christian or non-Christian. We're staying in our enclaves of comfortability with people who look like us and think like us and act like us. But our call is to leave that place as Jesus did and put on flesh with real people in real places. And to the world, this is going to seem, when when we cross over the dividing lines, when we begin to engage with our enemies, when we begin to, to be vessels of peace and of hope and of love, it's going to appear as if we're relinquishing power and control to the world. It's going to appear as if we're conceding, basically, victory. It's as if we were giving our concession speech right now when we begin to interact and be those vessels to people who disagree with us and to people who don't look like us and to people who aren't from where we're from. But it's the place where everything comes together in perfect unity. That's what the text says. Colossians 3:14 and above all these put on love which binds everything together In perfect harmony. Which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Other translations says which binds us. I like that translation. Together in perfect harmony or unity. What is love? Do love binds people together in perfect unity. It's what love does. And it seems that this statement that Paul is making in this text, he's actually responding to some popular philosophers and different ideologies of his time. Uh, Other philosophers would say, well, friendship is the bond of all virtues. Or Plato is on record as saying, law is the bond that holds a city together. And what Paul is doing is he's counteracting those views. He's counteracting those popular ideologies of the time. And he's saying, no, no. Laws and regulations are never enough. Helpful, good, needed, but love is the only thing that is sufficient to hold people together. Because the problem with laws and regulations is all we have to do to follow them is what's required. Right? We, we think about laws, all we have to do is what, what's required, the bare minimum. I live uh, on the kind of near the corner of Fourth Avenue and 7th Street. There's a four-way stop. No one stops. Can I tell you that? Like no one, you probably have ran that stop sign several times. They kind of like, what's the least like, can I, it's like a California roll, right? They just go right past it and everyone's on their phone. Don't text and drive. I do it too much too, probably. Anyway, right, but, or, or speed limits. We do the bare minimum. Oh, can I go five over on the highway? I think so. usually you can, right? We, we do that. Or think about maybe a little more relatable is relationship boundaries with your girlfriend or your boyfriend. We essentially ask the question, Okay. How far physically can I go without crossing the line? What's as, what is the closest I can get to sinning without actually sinning? Sometimes we do that as Christians in so many areas of our life, but that is the opposite of love. Love always goes above and beyond. The way of Jesus always goes above and beyond. There's many examples of this in Scripture, but Jesus, in Luke 6, he says these words. He says, "Love your enemies." Pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who curse you. Turn the other cheek. Give to everyone who begs. If someone takes from you, don't demand it back. And here's what he says in in Luke 6, verses 35 and 36. He says, But love your enemies, and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. Did you catch that part? God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. It's never struck me as I've read this text before that God himself is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Not those who are just his followers, and not those who agree with him or who disagree with him. He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. But the world will say, we need to cancel our enemies and those who disagree with us. They will say, charge interest to get more for yourself. They will say, oh, the beggar, it's their fault. Get revenge. The world's vision is, you know what, your personal preference reigns supreme. Your truth is your truth, and there is no overarching narrative or truth that we can abide by because what you think reigns supreme, and that gets to rule what you do and how you do it. But let's not buy into that vision. Let's go above and beyond, and let's love. And this dream for God's people sounds crazy, but it's what Jesus did and what he's inviting us into to put on flesh in a particular place with a particular person. To take part in incarnational living as Jesus did. And as we do this as a church and as a people of God, as we put on flesh, as we put on love, that future vision for the church and for the world becomes a reality in the present. Right, as we begin to do that to actual people and actual places, the reality of Colossians 3 can be lived out here and now. It is not just a future vision of the church, but it can be a present reality. If we put on love. Going back to the text above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This word binds can also be translated sinews or joints. Paul uses this same word in Colossians 2, verse 19, and he translates it joints and ligaments, right? It's it's the things that basically hold our body together. And the point of it is that love is the thing that joins, love is the thing that binds, and love is the thing that puts back together. It is not a president. Or his agenda or her agenda It is not a slogan or a law or a legislation Although those things matter and let's take part in those things But it is love that sets the world right It is love that puts the world and the church back together And if I can be honest For a second with one of my own wrestlings Over the last few months and particularly over the last few weeks I've begun to ask myself If the church can recover, can we as a people of God recover from the words that have been spoken, the hurt that has been caused, the judgment that has been cast? Can we recover from the burden and the weariness of it all, from the pandemic and from the election and from just studies in normal life? Can we recover? Because I've asked myself, I said, not only can we recover as a church, but I wonder if the church's public witness to the world will be permanently damaged, will be permanently hindered based on the way we've treated each other. And if you haven't asked yourself that question, I really, I encourage you to reflect on it. Will your, will the church's, will the people of God's public witness to the world be permanently damaged and hindered based on the way we have treated one another in the world? Can we recover? I, I think about the coming months because even if we find out the election tomorrow or the next day or today or whenever, the next hundred days or so are going to be filled with court battles and, and Supreme Court decisions and there is going to be words flying all over the place. The, the fear and the anxiety and, and what you're feeling doesn't all of a sudden go away. And I wonder how will we respond in the next 90 days, in the next three months? Can we recover? Will people ever trust the church again? But then I'm reminded that God has revived his people before. I'm reminded throughout scripture that God has renewed his people before. And I'm reminded that he's put his people back together and he's given them fresh dreams and he's given them fresh visions. I couldn't help but reading this text and then thinking about Ezekiel chapter 37. It's a familiar text. The prophet Ezekiel is is taken to a valley where there's a lot of bones. And the reason I think about this is because the word sinews and joints are found in this text as well. But Ezekiel is taken to a valley and it says it is full of bones. And, And it says, And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley... And behold, they were very, very dry. God took them to this place, and Ezekiel saw dry bones. And the thing about dry bones, what that means is they used to have life. Right, the flesh has fallen off. They've been taken apart. That means they are very, very dry. They have decayed. A person, a body, a community has decayed to the point of dry bones. Maybe that's how you feel this morning just dry and weary. I think it might be the state of our church as a people of God that we're just dry. But then what takes place is is God says, Ezekiel, go speak the word of the Lord to these bones. Go and prophesy to these bones. And here's what it says, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you. And you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So God says, My people are not dead, they are not dry, but He puts flesh on the bones, and He joins them together, and He breathes His breath. In them and they come alive and I think the way this will take place in our moment in history in our church and on our campus is by the way that we love each other is by the way that we treat each other. Because I believe when we choose to put on love, there is a breath of God that is breathed into individuals, and there is a breath of God that is breathed into communities, and there is a breath of God that is breathed into the structures of our world. When we choose to love one another, there is a refreshing and a reviving and a renewing that takes place. When we choose to love Dry bones are revived and when we choose to love Burdens are lifted and when we choose to love Weariness turns into refreshment and when we choose to love chains are broken When we choose to love structures are set right When we choose to love we are released from the vision of the world and the burden that it brings And we are set free to embody the vision of Jesus in complete joy and delight. When we choose to lay down our right to ourself and choose to love, that's power. And it's that vision that will shape people's hearts and drive people to Jesus. It's a vision people will want to be a part of. And so can the church recover? Yes. Yes. ...as we love each other. I'll close with this... ...as the worship band can come back up. Recently, before the election... ...a pastor, Andy Stanley... ...wrote an article in Time Magazine. And here's here's what he wrote. Here's what I want to leave you with... ...this morning. He says this... ...your political candidate... ...will win or lose... ...based on how American citizens vote... ...on a Tuesday in November. But the church wins or loses... ...the community wins or loses... And in some way, our nation wins or loses based on how Christians love each other. That's why Jesus said we must not allow anything or anyone to divide us. As we consider candidates and policies, there is one question Christians must not neglect in their decision making. What does love require of us? What does love require of you? Well, it requires to put on flesh in a real place with a real person and to go above and beyond. And so today, my very practical application to you is to love someone that disagrees with you. It's to love someone who maybe voted differently than you. It's to love someone who's a different race. It's to love a difficult roommate It is to love anybody and everybody. It is to love a real person in a real place. And to embody compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience and forgiveness and love. And as we do that, as we allow that vision of the future to shape and drive us, we will see God breathe a life into our dry bones and into our dry church and into our dry world and we will begin to see people who are revived and renewed and reconciled and set free. And so God, may we be a people who loves. May we be a people who embodies your vision, not the vision of the world. Will you put somebody in our life today for us to love? For us to choose love very practically and literally, God, every person listening and in this place, will you put someone in our life today to love? And may we begin to see how you restore and put back together in perfect unity. You are good. In Jesus' name, amen.